So first of all, you can all hear Eleanor in the background. This is Eleanor who has a lot to say about Dracula. He has walked through centuries, untouched by time. He has seen empires rise and fall. He possesses the wisdom of the ages. Throughout eternity, no man has ever provoked such terrible fear and such haunting desire. Dracula, starring Frank Langella, with Laurence Olivier. I am the last of my kind, descended from a conquering race, but I must warn you to take good care. If at any time my company does not please you, you will have only yourself to blame. Oh God, help my poor soul. lover who ever lived, died, and lived again. Sacrilege! Dracula. Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. And I'm Johanna. And I'm Courtney. What have you been up to recently, Courtney? I have been hard at work. Uh, I just finished writing a novel and I am hard at work producing the final season of my cozy horror or lighthearted horror, whatever you want to call it, audio drama, The Way We Haunt Now. Do we call so it spoopy? Uh, you can. I, I wouldn't, but <laughs> that's a personal choice. <laughs> How about you, Johanna? I just rewatched the film Escape from New York last night. Uh, the Criterion Channel has Harry Dean Stanton as Harry Brain. Dean Stanton. Yes, oh, I'm man. a huge Harry Dean Stanton fan, Courtney. That's why I say that. He's the strongest part of that film, like without question. Kurt Russell does not deliver one of his best performances in Escape from New York. The one note that he's playing is a fun note, but it is the same note throughout the entire film. But still fun. It's completely bonkers. I was watching it because I wanted to see if I should recommend it to my son. His English midterm was to rank his top five favorite movies and defend them. As, oh, as God, why five. didn't I get assignments like that when I was in school? Oh, man. So, so let me run them down. His number five choice was Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse for superior animation and representation. Great film. Thumbs up. Uh, Number four, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> Two thumbs up. Yes. Yep. Number three was Fargo. Yep. And number two was The Thing. And, yes. And his favorite film of all time is The Shining. So all- Awesome. My really favorite horror features. film. Yeah, yeah. All very solid, defendable choices. So anyway, because of The Thing, I was thinking, oh, maybe we should watch some other John Carpenter, Kurt Russell films, but I'm not sure- I'm not sure Escape from New York holds up. 
So Snake Pliskin, I thought you were dead. You have to drink every time they say that. Yes. <laughs> so I, I have to wait then until Finn is 21. Then we can watch it together. <laughs> Escape from New York, I think, is very much a Gen X thing. It's kind of like the Road Warrior that way in that, like, we were convinced. We were convinced in the, you know, late 70s, early 80s that they were going to drop the bomb and we're all going to die. And there, uh, those of us that would survive would be in this, like, desert wasteland fighting for water and gasoline. Yeah. See, this is how I know that I'm a millennial and not in your generation is because I was aware of this impulse inside me of what, you know, why is everyone so unlikable? Why doesn't anybody in this film want to be liked? <laughs> you know, everyone's way too punk rock for that kind of nonsense. Not that I, uh, I'm not endorsing that attitude of millennials at all, but just in a sense of like, what does reality look like? For me, it's the oppressive fear of like, I have to be liked all the time. And that sucks almost as much as the fear of the bomb. <laughs> maybe we'll do some John Carpenter. We already did Christine, but maybe we'll do some more John Carpenter on the show. By the way, uh, listeners, if you haven't, go check out our episode on Christine with screenwriter Bill Phillips. All right. Instead of talking about 1979, because we're going to do more Draculas in 1979, this is just the beginning of 1979. So instead of going into a background on the year 1979, I want to talk a little bit about Dracula in comics and graphic novels. Dracula has fared way better in comic adaptations than on the screen, in my opinion. There are a number of graphic novel adaptations that have been made over the years, and in general, the quality and faithfulness has been much higher than with television and movie counterparts. This started in 1966 with Dracula, the original graphic novel. This was basically the sort of classics illustrated version of Dracula. It has an introduction by Christopher Lee, who we talked about in Horror of Dracula. Go back and listen to that episode. The cover art is by Frank Frazetta, who we talked about in our episode on Fire and Ice. Go back and listen to that episode if you get a chance. And it was written by Otto Binder, the co-creator of Supergirl. Marvel Comics took a lot of interest in this return of horror. Superheroes were starting to drop off in popularity. Vampires were banned by the Comics Code Authority, but then they made an exception to anything that was based in literature. So probably four Classics Illustrated. And that meant that uh, they could have vampires again. And first, Marvel started with Morbius, and then they introduced Dracula in a title called Tomb of Dracula, which is excellent, by the way. Marvel Comics spun off a magazine-sized Dracula-based comic called Dracula Lives. It was basically an anthology. And for that anthology, they got Roy Thomas and Dick Giordano to create a adaptation of Stoker's novel. They called it Stoker's Dracula, which was pretty faithful. Unfortunately, Dracula Lives magazine was canceled after five issues or five chapters were published they managed to get their sixth chapter published some months later in another monthly horror magazine but it was canceled after one issue so after six chapters this adaptation was left unfinished 
there was a Spanish adaptation of Dracula by Fernando Fernandez with painted illustrations that's supposed to be quite good in the original Spanish, although the translation is not supposed to be quite so good. It sort of mirrors the 1931 Dracula film where the Spanish version is the better film. Then in 1992, Topps, who made the trading cards, decided to enter the comic book market. And one of the things they did was license properties. And they had the license to Francis Ford Coppola's film, Bram Stoker's Dracula. And they hired Roy Thomas to do the adaptation. Roy Thomas, by the way, you might remember, we talked about him way back when we did Conan the Destroyer because he wrote the graphic novel Conan and the Horn of Azoth, which became that movie. And the artist was a young man named Mike Mignola, whose next big project would be creating Hellboy. The Bram Stoker's Dracula graphic novel is well worth checking out. Roy Thomas, a year later, did another graphic novel called Dracula Vlad the Impaler uh, with Esteban Maroto. And it's actually about Vlad Dracul, the younger, and his quest for revenge against the Ottoman Turks for the death of his father, Vlad Dracul the Elder. So Roy Thomas, he basically became the editor-in-chief at Marvel. He was Stan Lee's hand-picked successor. But despite all that power, he was never able to get his version of Stoker's Dracula back in print. Dick Giordano goes on to become the editor-in-chief at DC and uh, vice president of DC Comics. And he's never able to get DC to reprint it. I think Giordano did some Sandman issues with Neil Gaiman and was able to convince Vertigo to try to license it from Marvel. And uh, it fell through because Marvel was like, no, wait. Dracula is doing good again. Let's let's put it out. So they agreed to fund 100 more pages for them to wrap it up. And so 30 years after they started this thing in the 1970s, in 2005, they finished Stoker's Dracula, also known as the Marvel Illustrated Dracula. I liked it quite a lot. The current slipcover doesn't do it justice because it's by another artist. So I don't like that. But if you remove the slipcover underneath it, it's a, in a faux black leather with Dracula is the only word on it embossed in red. It is well put together. Some people claim that Giordano's style doesn't match his older style, but I was okay with that. What I was not okay, the one big drawback to this is that it's in color. And the original uh, Dracula serial that these two creators, Thomas and Giordano, did was in black and white. It was created to be in black and white. So it's like done in half tones and things like that. And they, they put a lot of thought into that. Marvel wanted to colorize it because they were up against competing with Dynamite Entertainment's Complete Dracula, which I'll talk about in a future podcast. The worst part is that they decided to color it, in my opinion. We will talk about this later in the podcast. The colorizing or changing of the color of something away from the original artist's intent and why that's always a bad idea. So this was basically composed to be in black and white. I will talk more about other adaptations of Dracula in comic book form in future episodes, but I highly recommend picking up Marvel's illustrated Dracula, adapted from the novel very faithfully, 
by Roy Thomas and Dick Giordano. All right. That said, uh, let's talk about a film that came out a few years after the early chapters of that. Dracula in 1979 uh, with our friend Frank Langella, a.k.a. Skeletor. Yeah, so this version of Dracula was directed by John Badham, who had just made Saturday Night Fever in 1977, a huge hit. And after this film, he went on to make other fan favorites like Stakeout and War Games. So have a solid director behind this picture. We also have music by John Williams, which it's not a typical John Williams score in the sense that there are not identifiable motifs for the characters, but the music is very atmospheric and definitely had impact on the scores for later Draculas. It was mostly filmed at Shepperton Studios, which is, you know, another solid house to be behind. So has a lot going for it. But of course, um, some, some of the best things in its favor are the fact that it's adapted from a very successful stage play version of the story written by Hamilton Dean. It played for over 900 performances from October 1977 to January 1980. It was set in the Edwardian period and has a really striking design by Edward Gorey. I'm not sure why they changed from the Victorian or late Victorian, like 1880s, 1890s, to the Edwardian and late Edwardian at that. It's like set in 1913. So I guess my gut instinct is just so that they could make Lucy more obviously sort of like a uh, what the Victorians would have called a new woman. So sort of, you know, like take charge, make her own decisions, less modest than a Victorian that's that's the only real because I I I was puzzled by that too. Like the technology is pretty similar. There were cars. There's like no real reason to make a huge shift except Lucy to me. And my theory is that it didn't seem like that long ago. And the reason I say that is there were still people alive in the 1970s that remembered the 19 teens. Mm. It would be like today setting something in the 1950s as opposed to like pre-World War II. It was like plausible, like not that long ago this happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like my only theory about it, why they would do that. Yeah, yeah. That plus wanting to include a car. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there were cars in 1897. Uh, It's not clear exactly what year the i guess there are years in novel uh, in dracula and i don't have my copy of it but there were cars <laughs> just yeah. maybe not such um fun ones to <laughs> put on set yeah i mentioned that this is in 1979 that this came out i want to say i also have a theory about why dracula was so popular that year mm-hmm. it's two things one jaws came out in uh 73 five-ish i forget the exact year and that was the first horror movie blockbuster some say the first blockbuster film ever that cast a shadow over this film in some ways obviously john williams did the soundtrack for both of them as he did for star wars which came out a couple of years before this remember movies take a few years to make star wars i think the studios were like people want 
more fantastical stuff rather than dramas, which sort of ruled the box office before this in the 70s, like Ordinary People, Nashville, Kramer versus Kramer, things like that were what dominated. And then suddenly everybody wants supernatural stuff and they're like, we could do Dracula. And of course, Dracula was a hit Broadway play. So at the time, that's what I was thinking. I don't know for sure that that's the reason, but 79 was a big year for Dracula. There were multiple Dracula films that came out that year. Okay, since I mentioned Star Wars, it's time to mention the colorization. I watched and I had you guys watch a theatrical version of this in 1991, I think it was around that time. The director, John Batham, recolor timed this movie and he desaturated it. I don't know if you guys have seen the desaturated version, but it destroyed the look and feel of it that was crafted by the cinematographer, Gilbert Taylor. Gilbert Taylor, by the way, cinematographer of Star Wars. So he knows what he's doing, you know, and makes choices consciously about the color. The problem is anyone who's taken digital photos might have seen this. You know how, like, if you take a digital photo with your phone and there's multiple filters, there's multiple black and white filters, not all black and white's the same. You can't just change something to black and white that was made composed in color. You have to adjust all the individual color levels. And it doesn't seem like Batam thought of that. He just sort of desaturated everything without dealing with relative color values and things like that. That was not the way the cinematographer had intended it to look, or at least he wasn't involved in the color timing of it. He knows how to shoot black and white. Like Gilbert Taylor also did Hard Day's Night, the Beatles film, which is one of the best composed black and white films I've seen. This goes back to what I was saying with the Marvel Illustrated graphic novel being made originally designed to be seen in black and white and they decided to colorize it. This is the opposite. This is like they took the color out of it without adjusting the contrast and stuff like that. So it's a muddy mess. In my opinion, there's some people who prefer it. Obviously, the director prefers it. And the worst part about it is he Lucas special editioned this because they <laughs> made the uh, the <laughs> they made the re restoration into a new 70 millimeter print and everything else that succeeds that has been this version. So if you see this on streaming, chances are you're getting the desaturated version because the picture quality is better because it's made from a higher quality print. I would rather have the lower quality picture from the original negative, but with the color timing correct. Okay, rant over. We can uh, go back to uh, to our regularly scheduled podcast. <laughs> all right. So um, first of all, I love all that trivia and behind the scenes uh, about the cinematography. That's really cool. And um, yeah, I'm really glad we watched the theatrical version. It played perfectly fine on my laptop. I usually advocate seeing things on the largest screen possible, but with the quality of the theatrical version, small screen was fine, but the color was great. Back to Frank Langella. He took an approach to this character that was sort of setting a new standard for how the character would be played afterwards. He decided, quote, Dracula is not a ghoul. I decided to play him as a lonely, troubled monarch with a sense of humor and a unique social problem. I love that phrasing. I see him as a nobleman with a quiet secret. 
not a man who goes around attacking victims, but instead seduces them. He is compelled to drink the blood of innocent victims. Whether he came across sexy or not wasn't on my mind, Langella said. But then I grew to understand when women fainted and when they were carried out of the theater, I thought, okay, I'm onto something here. So apparently uh, he was legendarily sexy on stage and screen with this role. Basically, Langella's cape and tux is like flawless no matter what happens. No matter what happens, he still looks perfect all the time. Langella said that he thought would be most unnerving about the character is this idea that if you gave, gave someone a magic potion and said, as long as you take this, you can stay alive. And then someone would try to take that away from you. That he thought pretty much anybody would be willing to hurt others in order to stay alive as long as we can. And it's that that frightens us the most is that sense that we also would stoop to Dracula's level to drain the lives of others in order to keep ourselves going. But it's also what draws us to him. The casting of Dr. Seward in this is Donald Pleasance. Speaking of John Carpenter earlier. Yeah, and Escape from New York. I, I was going to say, like, God, that guy looks familiar. Like, but it can't be the same guy. But it is. Okay. All right. Yeah. Cool. And not only that, in Halloween, which came out the year before, he played Dr. Loomis, whose mental patient, Michael Myers, escapes and leads to uh, all sorts of havoc for Laurie Strode. Well, in this, he's Dr. Seward, you know? So uh, I know they weren't stretching too far on that, but perfect casting there. One of the best Demeter scenes of all time is how the crash of the Demeter is handled in this one, in my opinion. As much as I love the opening part of the novel with Jonathan Harker traveling further and further east and the way that's handled and the scenes in the castle, I actually thought that this worked fine, starting with the Demeter. I was really surprised about that. Yeah, it makes a lot of dramatic sense to start here. I won't say more than that. I really liked the way that opening here set up for the ending. I thought it was a brilliant choice, actually. I agree. Things should start in Whitby if you're dramatizing this for the screen. If you want to tell the story of Harker or even Dracula's guest, which I think we pretty much think is Renfield, if you want to tell those stories, tell them in flashback later on. But start with the wreck of the Demeter. Some changes here. Okay, again, there's a shuffling of the characters. Lucy's a Seward. Mina is a Van Helsing. There's also, uh, there's a lot of little details in here. Remember I mentioned the Carfax Abbey detail last time? This time, Dracula talks about trying to translate the Demeter log, and he says that he's Shekel, and that they're Magyars. I thought that was a neat little part. Although, keep in mind, in other versions of Dracula, he claims to be of a different ethnicity. So I think they just chose shekels for this, but it works. What I find interesting about the original novel is that he's coded as multiple ethnicities, that he's a stand-in for Irish or Jewish or, you know, goodness knows what, Catholic, like generic Catholic. <laughs> so... Yeah, I, I would be surprised if he's pinpointed as a specific thing, just because I think being the foreigner generally is so effective. There's a scene where Lucy faints and Dracula says, no drugs, you must not pollute her blood. 
And everyone, including Dr. Seward, go along with this, you know? But then he proceeds to hypnotize her. And this has the most accurate representation of hypnosis that I've seen on screen. Like in most of these, like you get the close up on Dracula's eyes and it's hypnosis. This actually was like a real hypnosis session. I thought that was a cool little detail they threw in there. One of the things I like about this version or, or that's interesting, not accurate to the book, but in the versions where Dracula is known to the other characters at Whitby, it always adds an interesting new element. And we see it with the Lugosi version also. But some of the class tensions that are present in the book come more to the surface when it's Dracula, you know, nobility versus these just like regular rich people. You know, the thing that stuck out to me is that in this version, Dr. Seward is less of a doctor than he is in a lot of the others, or at least our modern medicine idea of a doctor. I already mentioned the like no drugs thing, and he just went along with it. But I've talked about how like in other uh, adaptations, it's like, give him brandy, you know, like brandy's the Victorian, like, <laughs> it solves everything. You're sick, have some brandy. You're, you're like, undead, have some brandy. In this, he just smacks Mina around at one point. He's just like, okay. <laughs> Interesting treatment. <laughs> it took me to this point in the film before I realized that Lucy and Mina's roles were reversed and Lucy's engaged to Jonathan Harker. No idea why they did that, except maybe that's the way the stage play is. I don't know. I'm guessing so i tried to look this up also and in the production notes uh the director said i don't really remember why we made that change i think it's because we thought that mina was dumb name and lucy was a nice name and so we wanted to give the main character the name lucy i'm like oh (laughs) okay it sounds like the same thing he did with the color it's like oh we're just gonna do it this way (laughs) yeah (laughs) renfield doesn't appear until fairly late in the film We don't see him a whole lot, but he's clearly Dracula's servant. So when we're in Dracula's castle or whatever at Carfax Abbey, there's like a million candles. And I'm thinking Renfield's full time job is lighting candles because like, how would you ever light that many candles? Never mind it being a fire hazard, but yeah. Yeah, this is something I kind of liked here also is getting the sense of Renfield as a servant of Dracula more than just like locked up and pining for him. And I thought that was cool. Yeah, I think he's one of my favorite Renfields. And I also think, so when the ship wrecked, he was just like a normal guy going around doing town stuff. So it was nice to see sort of this progression of him like like losing a life because of Dracula instead of just seeing him already sort of imprisoned and like with everything lost. Speaking of that castle, though, like, how cool that they found a bat-themed castle for him randomly off the coast of Whitby. Like, Jonathan Harker's a great uh, solicitor. I want to ask you guys about a scene that didn't make any sense to me. And I I know why they threw it in there, but... Please say it's the one with the special vampire-sniffing white horse. Please It's the one with the vampire-sniffing white horse. I'm like, why is the horse bucking? Because it's around vampires? I'm like... Wait a minute, the horses have been around vampires for this whole movie and not it's not been a problem, including the, you know, the original carriage ride. And 
it just made no sense that this one random horse decides to like, okay, this is where that's that's where the vampire is, you know? And I think that like Van Helsing intuits that he can do that with the horse because he sees Dracula riding a horse and the horse shies away from the the like the logic, like <laughs> this man is a professor. How's how's any of this actually making sense? Yeah, I wondered whether just from a creative standpoint, they thought like no, no, a dog's not spectacular enough. That's that's going to seem anachronistic, even though they definitely would have had dogs that could have done the same thing. But they were, they were like, no, no, it's got to be a horse instead. We'll make it work. Some other things about this one that stood out to me, again, more fruit bats, like the cutest bats ever. Like, don't put fruit bats in a movie where bats are supposed to be scary. Also, did you guys notice... At one point, we see Dracula's reflection in a pool of water. I forget who it was. They see Dracula approaching because they see him in a pool of water. It's, yes, you know, plain as day. And I'm like, okay, so mirrors, no, but pools, yes. <laughs> Very particular in-universe rules. So there's no Quincy or Arthur. And everything stays in Whitby, right? They never end up in London. Yeah. I think they make it halfway to Scarborough or to, to Scarborough, but. Spoiler alert here, because we're going to get to the ending and we have to talk about the ending. So uh, putting a spoiler alert in here now so that people know to skip to the end of the podcast if they don't want to hear this. The climax is back aboard a ship bound for Romania. Van Helsing is killed. And then it ends with Dracula's cape flying off in the wind. I sort of mentioned at the start that I thought, like, so we, in the opening we have this, like, the the hook hauling those boxes of loam out of the uh, the cargo hold in this very, like, Chekhov's cargo hook sort of moment. So I, I really liked that he <laughs> was, like, hoisted on that hook in the end and, like, boiled in the sun. I didn't think it was quite, like, the, the sun bit. I guess having come of age in the Buffy era, <laughs> I I expected more like com- combustion there. Um, so it, it didn't hit quite as hard as I think it would have maybe in the day. But um, yeah. yeah. And then sort of the cape flapping off, I I wondered like, oh, and then Lucy like getting all evil smile. That, I mean, it was it was very horror tropey. Like, is it over really? <laughs> yeah. I thought they filmed the cape in an ambiguous enough way where I. I couldn't tell if Dracula was flying away or if it was just the cape, which I thought was cool. Had it been at night, I would have it would have worked for me a little bit better. But during the broad daylight, seeing Dracula like there's no way Dracula's flying off on a sunny afternoon. Like it just didn't, you know that 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 didn't work for me. <laughs> How do you rate this version, especially compared to the last one we just watched, the BBC Dracula? Yeah, I mean, okay, I'm going to be sort of, uh, <laughs> I'm going to get my Victorian card revoked. I liked this better. <laughs> I thought it was more fun for, like, the. I thought it was a good, they really made use of the film uh, format, like, instead of just trying to follow, like, the capabilities of what a novel can do versus that. Also, Laurence Olivier as Van Helsing was, like, really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Sir Laurence Olivier. I want to point out another little minor casting that I don't know if you guys noticed or not. Walter Myrtle, who is sort of 
Dr. Seward's assistant. He's sort of a bumbly guy with, you know, usually holding a cup of tea or whatever. You guys remember him? You didn't recognize him? That is Sylvester McCoy, who Doctor Who fans, future seventh doctor. Uh. We last saw him on this podcast as Radagast in the Hobbit movies. But yeah. Okay, so that was Sylvester McCoy's first appearance on screen, uh, as far as I know. One of the things about reducing the number of suitors and keeping Nina, uh, I'm sorry, Lucy, and Harker engaged throughout the story is it became much more one of, like, intimate betrayal and not as much about the general themes of what vampires represent or, you know, fear of death generally, like a lot of the other things that other versions of Dracula bring up and that it just seems so much more personal in this version, which was kind of, kind of interesting, but ultimately to me, just less horrifying. Um, I, I feel like the horror element of this film is really missing, even if there are a lot of other areas where it's really great. Like, I, I do think that some of the choices they made to, cut down the novel, worked better than expected, but it just ended up with this slightly different kind of story. I liked it. I feel two things are going on here. I feel like that Dracula for the screen is getting better and better over time, but it's still not the Dracula that I want. But also there's, there's this tendency from when we start with Murnau and like then Lugosi and all that, and he slowly becomes more and more debonair and seductive and blah, blah, blah. And that like takes us into the end of the seventies and then the eighties slowly, the pendulum is going to swing back the other way to today where it's gone almost the other direction all the way back to its original Nosferatu. That's kind of the way things are going, but looking at this in terms of its place, in time if you watch the original theatrical version this is one of the best draculas we've got so far i did like it better than the bbc dracula i thought that despite the fact that it is less faithful to the novel it was better for the screen the cast again awesome frank langella awesome sir Lawrence olivier awesome you know and it was good to see donald pleasance in there as dr seward but Again, it's not the Dracula I want. It's getting closer to the Dracula I want. But again, it's a toss up because I really liked Christopher Lee as Dracula. That was my Dracula that I grew up with, uh, the Hammer Horror Dracula. And the Hammer Horror Dracula, we only watched Horror of Dracula. Sometime in the future, we got to go into the sequels because it gets better. That Dracula series gets better over time. Frank Langella was a sexier Dracula than Christopher Lee. But Christopher Lee, I think, nailed the blend. Like, he was sexy, but also, like, a monster. And, you know, you and frightening uh, in a way that Langella wasn't quite. Special effects in this film were excellent, though. I loved, like, the infinite supply of dry ice that they seemed to have on hand for all of that mist. There was just, like, the way Dracula materializes out of the mist in this film is great. And it was way gorier, too, than than mm. I thought. Like, when you see the uh, captain lashed to the wheel of the Demeter and he's, his throat is slashed, it is 
bloody dripping mess you know it's not like you usually get in these things where that you just see like some corpse at a distance all right uh i think that pretty much uh wraps us up for this one if you want to tell us your opinion on this why you think this is the dracula the best screen dracula i don't think we'll get anyone writing us that but if you do if you think this is the best dracula on screen write us a gc8 podcast that's letter g letter c number eight podcast at gmail.com courtney what's in store in the future with the podcast or anything else yeah uh so we're launching our crowdfunding for season three on uh, february 1st um and then new episodes will be coming out in march um we have 13 roughly 30 minute episodes full of ghosts and poltergeists and possibly carnivorous houses so uh don't miss it (laughs) awesome okay until next time this is eric this is johanna and this is courtney thanks for having me Signing off. He said that the character of Dracula taps into our need for immortality. He's not just looking to make it through the next day, but through the next century.